know what that means? Everything. Anglo thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full brigadier. That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes. It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode... 39? Yes. 39! Ha! I did the math right. And if you know the weekend I've had, you'd be really impressed by that. Because I have not had quite as much alcohol as certain other people I can name, but won't. Um, but I had quite a bit yesterday. Anyway, hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And we're here to talk about fandom and the sort of social psychosocial behavior of fandom and how that turns into scary things and hilarious things and hilarious scary and hilarious bad and other stuff like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not really though. I'm not sorry though. <laughs> um. So we thought that we would start by talking about the granddaddy of them all. Star Trek fandom. Before we had the internet, fans had to congregate in print media. Kind of, I guess. Can we call fanzines print media? Well, well you got to they print were on paper. paper. Yeah. <laughs> the origin of Slash. Kirk and yeah. Spock, the actual granddaddies of all, <laughs> of all Slash. And... I mean, from the beginning, driven by women. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's hard not to talk about fandom and, and not discuss the way that it is a very... I'm, I'm generalizing here, but it's a very female-centered activity. Mm -hmm. Like, men... Once again, generalizing, men have their sports and their beer and they're throwing balls in the air, and women have this sort of particular kind of community that centers on primarily pop culture but it does diverge elsewhere mm -hmm. and the way that they have a creative outlet through that through writing fan fiction through cosplaying through as it has now developed particularly online in places like tumblr it's very specific kind of race and gender bending casting this particular kind of analyses and the way that it is now impacting how we even make shows and discuss them that all has its origins in the Trek fandom, but it, it's now more visible because of the internet. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to, I guess, um, introduce a caveat that obviously some fan, some version of fandom existed far back. We can go back to, say, Sherlock Holmes and even further. But just because it's such a, an expansive topic to, for the limit of the podcast, we're going to start with modern media. Yeah, and and that the the really the today's fandom I think can go back to the sixth you know Star Trek as it's really as as its modern beginning of its modern incarnation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean fans behaving badly has been a thing forever, as we talked about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle being like, I want to want to have nothing to do with this, and they're like, no, we need more. I don't care if he's dead. Make him not dead 
or people writing to Louisa May Alcott saying, no, you need to put Joe and Lori together. You need to. I need this. And she going, or you can go fuck yourself. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or even as far as, say, Queen Elizabeth telling Shakespeare, no, you need to write a story where Falstaff falls in love. Yep. That's fan behavior. I I commissioned my own fanfic, Will. Go. (laughs) Go. Yeah, this is nothing new. I mean, we we kind of talk about it as centering or as the Trek fandom pioneering it, but that's pioneering the very specific kind of community and actions and fan Mm -hmm. activities that we know of. But the idea Mm -hmm. of fans and a particularly caveat of very enthusiastic fans and the way that they sort of uh, interact for lack of a better word with the object of their fandom that's that's hundreds perhaps thousands of years old you go back to you know patrons of the arts you go back to the the women that knocked on lord byron's door and followed him around on holiday you go back to as we mentioned everyone who bugged arthur conan doyle into bringing sherlock holmes back mm-hmm. or the beatles fandom which my grandmother was part of apparently oh she has. I am not joking. I will take pictures of this for you guys one day. She has a Beatles scrapbook. Oh, yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Every story you tell about either of your grannies just sounds awesome. <laughs> I think what a lot of people get from this kind of fan community and have done for a long time is a potential democrat democratizing of art mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. that it is it opens it up to them in a way that they hadn't experienced before. And I think that applies more as we get into the past 10 or 15 years of fandom where it's become more internet-based and it's become more focused on internet-based things. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest thing of the past couple of years online has been the growth of video critics and particularly YouTube. So mm-hmm. people like PewDiePie is obviously the big one. He has an exceptionally dedicated fan base. But also people like... I'm, I'm totally going to remember these people's names because I totally know who they are. Like The YouTube... Um, fans of, of the British people like um, Zoe Sugg and her boyfriend and all of those people have mm-hmm. massive fan bases who act in a way that fandoms always have but also with their own particularly unique, unique twist on it because it's focused so specifically on one website. Mm-hmm. Like We used to have live journal and stuff in the day they now have YouTube. right? And to a lesser extent something like maybe Instagram which is big for a lot of younger people in this kind of fandom. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think fandom's getting younger as well. I don't know if it's just because I'm older now, but it <laughs> I think feels it's like because it's getting you're younger. Getting, I think it's... Th- hmm. I think people are getting access to the internet in a way that... It's like, I've got 10 years on you. And... Um, I have so many thoughts that are like wrapped up in Tumblr posts. Um, but there's one that that's talking about how people of my age and my generation really kind of hit that cusp of watching technology change so rapidly and how our childhoods were not internet communication based because it didn't exist in a form that was really accessible to children and watching the how cell phones and twitter and everything changed how we relate to each other um, and kind of feeling nostalgic and still super stoked about the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? Kind of. Definitely. Um, and I think actually in terms of generations and ages, we should mention that now is the time when 
children of people of our generation are becoming are old enough to use the internet, but also their parents were internet users. So you don't mm-hmm. run into that attitude of my children need to be outside to play. Right. This isn't normal. I think I, I, I see this as getting younger because statistically speaking with things like the YouTube fandom, the biggest demographic of people who use YouTube frequently in a very dedicated manner are people, particularly young girls aged between about 13 and 18. Mm-hmm. You know, they are the demographic of people like PewDiePie and Zoella and you know, all of those women who like take open things out of boxes and show you them. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing. It's like fifteen minute videos of, hey, I bought a bunch of shit and they're like two million views or something. I don't get it. Like I, sorry, she let me yell at this cloud for a moment. I don't get it. <laughs> but because this is now the profitable demographic, YouTube know this. Mm-hmm. All of these companies know that. So they are reaching and I, yeah, I would say exploiting this this fan base in a very specific way that we wouldn't have been able to do 10 years ago or even five years ago. Mm-hmm. But we're also at this place now where people are literally publishing fan fiction and no one sees this as a problem. So right. do you think that fandom has just entered this space where people in sort of professional business areas of, of culture like publishing and television and video marketing and stuff just realize this is a market we can finally tap into? Well... I guess two questions here. The one about it getting younger is if you think about it, really, it's certain age groups who are actively crying out for role models. You know, when you are 12 to 13, like when you're that age, you love the slightly older, the late teens, early 20s, right? Like you want to look up to those people. So to me, it doesn't surprise me that those are the really active fan demographics. Um, And as for... But I do think you hit on something of professional businesses hitting on this as something now hitting on it as something that can make them money Mm -hmm. because internet has given fandom such visibility and also analytics that, that can actually be quantified. If it's a fanzine, yeah, they probably can have numbers of subscribers, but without the internet, who really knows it exists? Right. But now you have Google search analytics and view YouTube views. So you have actual numbers and people in business love numbers. Right. And people who are savvy enough and have worked enough with the internet that they understand how those numbers work. As opposed to, you know, older people in say the 60s or so going so there's this fan thing i don't know i don't know how we can monetize that so we're gonna ignore it and what's amazing is these numbers actually work in ways that i think kind of defy common sense i mean if you think about it let's we've we've already mentioned you know fanfic has published books and let's face it 50 shades is kind of the easiest example to go to because it's the most famous Mm -hmm. but this was this as a work of fiction was fully available for free online and it still made millions upon millions of dollars. If you tell a sales or marketing person from, I don't know, 40 years ago that something available for free, that you can then say, well, now you have to pay me for the thing you already have for three, but people will, I think it would have, wouldn't have meshed with, what, with how they thought their business worked. And yet more and more of them now kind of understand that, no, there, there's a, there's a psychology here to consumerism, mm-hmm. to how we consume these things that can make tons of money 
in ways that we thought we couldn't, but actually we can. So let's make that money. <laughs> right. I think it's a problem that always happens, which is something is will always be ignored when it's sort of pioneered and loved by women. And then when they realize, actually, we can make a lot of money off of this, they just decide to take over the wheel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can uh, kind of heavenly the groundwork. We can go, we have several topics to discuss. We can uh, revisit some beloved fandom wings. <laughs> And fandom wars. <laughs> uh, we can talk, uh, have a little section about real person fandoms. So this would be things like One Direction and say the Daily Show crew. And we can talk about, um, you know, fanfic to publishing. What do we want to tackle first? So let's, let's hit with the bad old days of fandom wank. Ah, <laughs> uh, the, the classics. The classics, <laughs> the repository of all of the great bullshit that went down. Man, there are days when I miss Live Journal, as the was Harmony Wars. <laughs> See, I missed all of this because I I didn't get the internet until I was about fifteen, mm-hmm. so I had missed all these. But oh my god, the amount of time I spent on Fandom Wank reading like the Misscribe saga. Oh my god, that was I read it once every one. six months, and I return <laughs> to it like it's a like it's a favorite book. Stranger than fiction, can we label it that? Yeah. <laughs> Do how do you even go about describing what this case was for the people who haven't heard of it? Okay, first off, if you haven't heard of this, oh you lucky people, you get to experience this for the first time and I'm so happy for you. <laughs> like we will we will obviously include a link to the write up, which uh unfortunately some of the links and of proving that like go to the background of some of the stuff have long died. Um, but the main write-up still exists and hopefully will as long as we have an, an internet when alien archaeologists come and find our data that has survived whatever holocaust we brought upon ourselves or whatever apocalypse we brought upon ourselves, which we will deserve. We'll 100% deserve it. Hopefully this will be there and they'll look at it and go... Wow, these people were fucked up. The Emma Scribe saga is one of the classics in Harry Potter fandom wank, which I think the the wank that came out of Harry Potter fandom is when you had to go to Yahoo groups to get your internet cranky on about what is Trevor the Toad one of the keys in ending the whole Harry Potter saga and the Rombledore theory. Oh, the Rombledore theory. <laughs> HP for grownups at yahoo.com. Damn right. <laughs> one of the, the great, great sagas of Harry Potter fandom was this woman who somehow managed to make herself a big name fan. Like she decided I'm going to be a big name fan in Harry Potter fandom. And she did it. And she did it with sock puppets. She killed off a couple of sock puppets, I think. She conned people into giving her gifts. And then there was, like, the long, slow unraveling of the story. I mean, like, if I told you this is a, th- a thing that happened, you'd be like, or if I, if I pitched this as a movie, everybody would be like, no, that doesn't happen. It's not real. No, <laughs> it's real. It happened. It happened multiple times. It's my favorite. 
After... And it just got weirder and weirder. Like, I'm pretty sure she was, quote-unquote, stalked by a super super religious nut who really hated slash fiction and focused on her and only her. So everyone rallied around her, and she wrote big inspirational posts to convert him to their side, and then she basically managed to get in with the sort of top tier of the big-name fans of the Harry Potter fandom. It was... The sort of House of Cards political genius that Frank Underwood wishes he could pull off. Yeah. Like, if you hear Frank Underwood commenting on this entire thing in your head, it makes it even better. (laughs) I will do that next time I read it. (laughs) Just all of that stink eye alone. Yeah. So I want to kind of pause here and we're introducing some concepts, which I think, say, if you were a person new to the concept of fandom, this kind of boggles you. But I think a fandom can have its hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It can have quote-unquote big names people in charge and you're thinking about it this is all just fans of a book like how is that no it's it's a mini society yeah with people in authority things you don't people you don't cross versus people you defer to it's and these this is serious business Yeah. yeah and people who who like well either you're in this camp or that camp and never the twain shall meet and you know you might even have some star-crossed lovers thrown in there somewhere i know that that's the next great fanfic book is star is romeo and juliet in fandom you have schism <laughs> and oh ship wars mm-hmm. fandoms will literally split into two and one leader will take their group on off live journal and into like i don't know dream journal Dreamwith or whatever. Dreamwith, yeah. The other will go to Yahoo <laughs> mailing groups. And... Yeah. Like, how dare you be a Harry Draco shipper? It's and, This was yeah. pretty much life or death for so many people for so long. I mean, it splintered potential friendships, entire communities. The entire idea of fandom being this, you know, almost democratic community where you can come and just share the love became incredibly bitter and strange and with its own set of increasingly convoluted rules that became impossible to follow even if you'd been there from the beginning Mm -hmm. and the way that people used that to further their own agendas and fame and profit yeah i don't i I would say that we don't really have that these days but then again el james managed it el james managed it i think part of what has made that less likely to happen is that on live journal it was really easy to sort of pull people from groups and like do a manifesto and have ship wars in the comments and stuff like that and tumblr is not really conducive to that kind of communication and tumblr is where a lot of fandom is so there is a lot less back and forth involved tumblr makes for very passive aggressive like we're gonna flood a tag Yes. We're going to ruin it by flooding a tag, whereas LiveJournal, you brawl in the comments. Yes. You make anonymous accounts and sock puppets, but you're still going at it in a chain of communication. Mm -hmm. So can fandom exist in that way nowadays? If if everyone has migrated to Tumblr, which is a bizarre website for everyone to suddenly use as their primary form of fandom, because it's kind of hard to keep track of everything. Like having a conversation... Mm-hmm. is a, a feat in and of itself. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't... I mean, obviously, no one... 
people aren't going to swarm suddenly swarm back to live journal that's done it's there's going to be a swarm to somewhere else and i don't know where or what it's going to look like the thing is i would say you fandom has become a lot more decentralized because it's now like diffused over hashtags Mm -hmm. right on twitter hashtag on tumblr tags so maybe it has become decentralized but i have to say that as I've gotten older, I have gotten a lot more out of touch with it. Mm-hmm. You know, back to our point of has fandom gotten younger? Well, I still enjoy things very much and have, you know, I, I still read fanfic and I love, you know, occasionally talking about this thing with with other fans of it. But just a little bit of it on, say, on Tumblr, like some really nice GIF sets and a few fanfic links, like that's all I need. I really no longer feel the need to be part of that of this concentrated community mm-hmm. no same here i don't know if i've grown out of it or if i just particularly with what tumblr has sort of contributed to the very concept of fandom like tumblr gets a lot of shit for the concept of quote-unquote social justice warriors which mm-hmm. i call giving a shit mm-hmm. but there is a very very strong take on the idea of that particular kind of intersectional feminist based discussion mm-hmm which I think can be occasionally really difficult to swallow. Yeah. And it, it became exhausting in that way. And I think there are certain hierarchies on Tumblr that are really tough to penetrate, but also tough to avoid. So the entire concept of super hulock mm-hmm. mm-hmm. is pretty much everywhere on Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not a fan of those things, they'll find their way into your fan thing. Yep. Yeah, although with Sherlock still being on hiatus, it comes back in January? It comes back, I think in the UK we get it a new year, certainly. I don't know, I'm not watching it. Because it's the Victorian special, I think, airs in January, early January. And I think that's the first of of the new season we get, the special. Yeah, last season PBS actually had their shit together and got us Sherlock a week after it aired in the UK. Mm-hmm. Which they, of course, could not do with Downton Abbey, but whatever. I'm not, you know, complaining. <laughs> do you see how loudly I'm not complaining? <laughs> I will say the thing about Tumblr that really concerns me is, and I'm not saying that this is just limited to this site. I think, you know, this is a problem that you're going to see in every kind of fandom, regardless of the medium that they're using. But it's really easy for certain conspiracies to spread wildly out of control on Tumblr just because of the way that you share content on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's the amount of posts I see go by uh, on my dashboard that I know are inaccurate. And I sometimes I see people try really hard to, you know, make sure their correction is the one that spreads. But because you can't control how a post spreads, the version without the correction can have so many more reblogs than the version with one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's whereas as opposed to something like a, a live journal post, which would have it in the comments and then it might... The post might get edited or something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that happens with news stories. That happens with this person said this terrible thing. And it's like, no, that's a fake tweet. We Mm -hmm. had that Tumblr post on how to spot a fake tweet just yesterday. Yeah. I had, you know, from my experience, and I wonder if this is just kind of my very limited scope on fandom, but I would say that 
the fandom that young people engage in today seems to be a lot more about real people. Yeah, and definitely. The fandoms I engaged in as a teenager and other teenagers engaged with in with me. I don't know if it's because Harry Potter was such a once in a lifetime phenomenon, phenomena that it just didn't. It didn't happen again. You know, even the Hunger Games that they don't quite reach. Maybe Fifty Shades, although I'm not even sure. In Twilight, no, I'm not sure. No. That's, it's not even. It doesn't quite have that reach. So maybe because we had Harry Potter, you know, it overshadowed anything else. But now, to me, the kind of fervor that we talk about really occurs around actors and musicians, mm-hmm. but not fictional characters. I yeah, think... I think you saw there was there was some of this in the Potter fandom. There was, I would say, more of it in the the Lord of the Rings fandom, very infamously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has certainly evolved in a way, and I think this is because of the rise of things like Twitter and Instagram, where you can interact with your fans more open. That that wall between the fan and the the creator or the artist or the actor is so much thinner now. Yeah, I mean, and that's I think exactly a lot of people, it. yeah, and I think a lot of people have. But I wouldn't say younger people. I really don't want to throw all the younger people under the bus here, because you know, plenty of there are plenty of teenagers in fandom who are far more sensible than the grown-ups. Mm. <laughs> and there are plenty of grown-ups without sense. <laughs> oh yep. Christ, yes, we'll get to that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I think I it kind of sounds like you're saying, Alina, and I don't think this is what you're actually saying, that well, we all blew our wand, uh, wad on awesome fandom with Harry Potter, so we have to find something else to obsess over. And I don't think that's actually what you're saying. Cause no. Is it just the kind of your perception of what fandom can be at its height? It's, it's my perception that the kind of invest, emotional investment that when I was a teenager, I saw people putting into fictional characters, mm-hmm. but now I don't really see that kind of in this. I mean, sure, people are fans of, say, Game of Thrones, but mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, fandoms that ha- that have kind of the, the highest fever pitch of emotionality, I tend to see them ab- around real people instead. Mm-hmm. So it's not like real Blue Art Collective wads <laughs> on Harry Potter. It's like maybe teenagers today don't have anything that resonates with them as much as Harry Potter, a fictional work that resonates with them the way Harry Potter does. Instead, they have real people that they feel a connection to, that they feel they know because of how available those people are to them on the internet. Mm-hmm. I think there's an element think, of that. Certainly. I think there's definitely an element of that in uh, Hamilton fandom. Which, which is very is new. A really, which is very new, but there, there's like weird fanfic about the founding father like it it gets into this really weird intersection between like fictional fandom and real person fandom and musical fandom and because Ham- hamilton is basically real person fic with mm-hmm. a really great beat and it's about multiple things and not just the life of alexander hamilton and the people who were around him um but it is still kind of sparked this interest in well i've just written some hamilton lawrence fic which is like okay but guys you know that this is these are real people right it's don't don't make it weird guys oh too late 
too late. But I feel like that line has already been crossed by Lin Manuel Miranda himself. I mean, he's kind of opened the gates to be like, go wild here. Because yeah. when you write a hip hop musical about one of the found, you know, the founding fathers starring a completely race swapped cast, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think the concept of you know keeping the lines of historical accuracy in there are a problem. And I, but I think with stuff like that, and particularly things that are geared towards younger people something like the hunger games i think a lot of the the real person elements in that are a blurring of the lines between those characters that they play mm-hmm. and the real person the biggest example i can think of is the hunger games fandom which has a huge very familiarly obsessive joshifer shipper section mm-hmm. which is obviously jennifer lawrence and josh hutcherson mm-hmm. and i think a lot of that is down to just those two being you know seemingly very nice people who they would want to spend time with but also because the main couple in that series is Peter and Katniss mm-hmm. and there's an element of this part of this fake life has to be part of this real life mm-hmm. and I, I think that's where a lot of the origins of this particular kind of real person fit comes from I think a lot of it's confusion of those people with the characters are wanting them to be more like the characters than they actually are mm-hmm. but then you get stuff like what's happening recently with benedict cumberbatch and i don't think that's tied to any of the characters he plays as popular as stuff like sherlock is Mm -hmm. i think that's a very kind of particular obsession over him and or at least what they think he is for those of you who don't know it came to the attention of sites like exo jane recently as well as an article in the scotsman believe it or not that benedict cumberbatch has a particular subset of fans who call themselves skeptics moment for irony mm-hmm. who believe that his wife sophie turner who's a very prominent theater director is not actually his wife or she's an abusive whore who faked her way into marriage with him and that their baby is not actually a real baby and is a doll mm-hmm. and they don't actually live in their house this house that fans once live tweet live tweeted almost going into or something like that what did they do I think they tracked his movements in the house. Yeah, they were tracking his movements in his house. They were tracking the movements in his house by live-tweeting it. But that's not actually his house. That's where his abusive whore, fake wife, and fake baby live. Mm -hmm. The baby's a doll, right? Yes, the the baby's a doll. Uh, There was an article about this on Exo Jane because a woman, uh, a writer, had just tweeted that she'd seen Benedict Cumberbatch and his wife in the street or in a theatre or something like that. And was immediately bombarded by his these particular crazy... I don't even want to call them fans. I don't know what to call them. Because they're not fans. I don't think no. what this is in any way constitutes being called a fan. This is a level of single-minded, obsessive delusions and bullying and misogyny that doesn't warrant that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what to call them either. It's very strange when you have some people who are fans um, of... Like when you have ship wars in a fictional fandom... Mm-hmm. You know, ha- Harmony, so Harry and Hermione versus Harry and Ginny and, Herm- and Hermione and Ron. And these people, you know, nitpick canon. Right. And then, and it can lead into things like what, when Mark was reading Harry Potter, called the Great Ginny Slut Shame of 2008. Right. Or is it 2010? I think it was 2010. Whatever. I mean, like, things exploded in the comments calling Ginny a slut because she uh, dated a couple of people and told Ron to bug out of her love life. How dare she? But yeah. When that happens and 
as strange as it is for somebody to be that obsessed with having to be right about a fictional character, at least, I guess you could say there's no context that can refute anything they believe because it's it's still fiction. So everybody has to kind of make up the rest of a story that wasn't there on the page. Mm-hmm. When it's real people and you are actively like denying elements of their life to try to almost make them into a fictional character for you, it's almost harder to to comprehend or to like see the point of view of i always say i think it always hinges on the you know if they're like as long as that person isn't you know isn't really married to that woman as long as ben comes isn't really married like i have a i have a chance except they know they don't so really it's the micromanaging of that person's life Mm -hmm. is what they want yeah like i know there are people who are super invested in like Haley Atwell and Chris Evans being together and I'm not going to deny it I think that would be adorable is they both seem to have a great deal of fondness and respect for each other but whether they should date or not it's kind of up to them I think. See, this is the thing, like, I know there are some people who just say no to RPF entirely. Like, mm-hmm. if you want to do RPF where it's just like, I like these two people and I like to imagine them in these scenarios for my own enjoyment and I like to keep it to this particular subset of the internet where no one else will see it, fine, you do you, okay? Yeah. But when, but you when start... it gets to, like, going on FKA Twigs' Instagram and leaving comments that she's a lying whore monkey and she'll never be as good as Kristen Stewart, that, that you're a habitual line crosser when you mm-hmm. do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do- Come on, guys. Don't be assholes. Don't be racist, misogynist assholes. And the misogyny is what gets me. You see mm-hmm. it time and time again. FKA Twigs is constantly subjected to it. Sophie Hunter is constantly subjected to it. Uh, Amelia Warner, Jamie Dornan's wife, mm-hmm. has received the most vile hatred lately from people who ship her husband with Dakota Johnson, which is baffling to me because those two seem to barely tolerate one another. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. at least Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart actually dated. Yeah. The, the I have to laugh actors, every time. Wives. Oh my god! I have so to laugh many. every time someone posts a Demi picture where it says, "Oh my god, look at the look he's giving her." It's like that's a set picture. He's being paid to give her that look, and he can't even do that competently. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's very much a case of you really like Fifty Shades of Grey and you want these two to actually be Anna and Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty simple analysis there. Yeah, completely rooted in the opposite of reality because those two have so little chemistry; it's actually painful. But stuff like, I mean, I don't, I don't fuck with the supernatural fandom. <laughs> they scare scary. me. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of the the top five scary fandoms, it's like them, Cumberbitches, nerd fighters. Mm. Still can't get over the you cannot work for that many years that closely with a person not fall in love with them. I'm like, oh, side down my coworkers. Y- yes, I can. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Welcome I to can. the world of being an adult. Yep. That's how that works. What stunts you understand these- that sex scenes are the least <laughs> sexy thing to do, right? As work. And they've been really open about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you'll very rarely find an actor who said, I love shooting sex scenes. If you find them, the chances are they're kind of a creep. <laughs> yep. They're, they're probably really creepy. This is kind of a story off a, off a commentary track. Do you, uh, have you guys seen Good Bill Hunting? Yeah. And that's an old movie. There's a scene in there, which is the very romantic, intimate scene of uh, Will and Skylar, and they're, they're lying in bed cuddling so the camera zoomed in and it's really intimate and if you listen to the commentary track 
Gus Van Sand and Matt Damon will be remembering. Yeah, the the operator was standing like on top of us in the bed and like looking at filming right down. <laughs> These are not intimate f scenes to film. There's a set. There's people on top of you <laughs> zooming into your face with a camera. Yeah. Yeah. So how much of this do you think is rooted in a level of self-insert fantasy and how much of it do you think is in a kind of wanting that particular fiction that they're a fan of to become reality? Because it's not enough for them to be with the person of their, their shipping dreams. They have to go out of their way to sabotage the other person's life. Because like, if your fantasy revolves around Jamie Dornan leaving his wife and child, his his pregnant wife and child, mm -hmm. to be with this other woman and have a very public and messy and undoubtedly slut shamey full coverage following that affair, that doesn't make him seem like a very good person. So why is that part of your fantasy? I want to say it's kind of a power thing. That's what I was going to like. It's about control. Yeah. But also, specifically to the point you said, well, why would you want Jamie Dornan to be that kind of person? None of those people think of him as Jamie Dornan. Well, that's true. None of them. He's Christian Grey, and Christian Grey is the thing they've read on the page. It doesn't matter what Jamie Dornan does. Jamie Dornan might as well be, like, an empty space. I mean, there's a blank mm. space, and they wrote Christian Grey's <laughs> name <laughs> in there. Well, yeah, because previously it was Charlie Hunnam. And I'm yeah. sure that if Charlie Hunnam had still kept that role the exact same thing would be unfolding. Right. Like, mm -hmm. who, I think Charlie Hunnam does have a girlfriend. I think she would be facing the same crap. She would be facing the same level of severe misogyny and slut-shaming because she's, quote-unquote, standing in the way of precious Charlie getting together with the, the perfect, blissful Anastasia, I mean, Dakota. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the amount of hate Rob Pattinson got when he was first cast? Like, do you um, remember? I remember some of it, yeah. I mean, because I know that they really wanted Jasper Rouillet and Emily Browning, I think. It was, and I think it was kind of the same with Jamie Dornan. There was a lot of like the first thing is not hot enough, and then of mm -hmm. course it doesn't matter because they'll cast for the cast. And once the film comes out, is okay. Well, if that's our Christian, then he better be fucking Christian. He doesn't get to be a person. But right. that's the thing is that. Even for people who liked the Fifty Shades of Grey movie in terms of critical acclaim, and there were critics who liked it, none of them liked Jamie Dornan in that role. None of them thought he was particularly adept at that role. You know, Dakota Johnson got sometimes got raves, uh, but he didn't. And a lot of the kickback you saw from even some fans was, well, they make him out to be such an abusive dick, and I'm like, fucking really? Well, they didn't. Yeah, they didn't yeah. make him. No, yeah, like, well done. It was like when Grey came out and all these people were like, he seems kind of abusive. And I'm just like, hands on chin going, oh, please tell me more. It's very hard for me to have, I'll be honest. I, I mean, obviously I never respond to any of those comments like reviews of Grey, but it would have been, if called upon, it would have been very hard for me to, I think, remain inoffensive because my only comment to, oh my God, it turns out he's such an abusive dick is not, oh, you finally understand, it's, I'm sorry, he was an abusive dick in the first book, and if you didn't see it, I still think there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I get that, I'm just, also, like, okay, for those people, I'm just happy you came to the party at all. <laughs> I think that's actually a pretty good segue into particular kinds of fan dedication, 
Mm-hmm. But I understand wanting to defend a thing you like. I've been there. I've done that. I at one point had the t-shirt, but I think my mum threw it away. <laughs> so I get that. I don't understand the psychology behind if you in any way criticize this thing that I like, regardless of how polite or succinct or well thought out or eloquent you are in that thinking, you are a terrible person and I must go out of my way to basically destroy you. Mm -hmm. I don't understand that level of very devoted mentality. Maybe it's just because I've never been that devoted. I'm just not that kind of person. I think it actually goes a little deeper than that. I think the root of the problem isn't if I like a thing, then nobody's allowed to criticize it. I, the what I, the problem I see with a lot of fans and fandoms right now is, and I think this might have been due to kind of the internet eco chamber. If you like, you cannot like a thing critically. If you say you like a thing, if you say you're a fan, then you're supposed to love and defend every single aspect of it. People will not allow themselves to like things they see flaws in. It's like they don't know how to reconcile that. Right. I, yeah, I, I think there's also a sense of, well, you say that Ant-Man is racist. And I like Ant-Man. Therefore, you're saying that I'm racist and being racist is bad. So you just said that I'm bad. And it's hard for some people. And this is, and this is a thing that I think comes with age. As you get older, you become a lot less egocentric because teenagers are egocentric. In in your early 20s, you're sort of beginning to move out of that. I mean, it's just, it's psychology. This is, this is how people work. These are, these are humans doing human things. That doesn't make it less annoying as you're going through the process. But kind of realizing that no this is not all about you and this is not a referendum on you as a person and learning how to go yes I like this thing it had problems but I still like it but it also has problems and being able to coexist in that place is something that comes with time experience and maturity sorry kids I'm sorry and also being able to get to that point and I think this is one of the issues that Tumblr has where you can point out the flaws in this thing and not immediately say this is bad and you should feel bad because yeah. I think that there is an element and I don't think it's rooted in in malice mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of young people who are realizing that there are these shades of gray in the world and they're going from one extreme to the other yeah I totally get that mm-hmm. and I you know I praise that in many ways because it can be really difficult to tackle these you know really difficult elements of life in mm-hmm. terms of discrimination, marginalization, and so on. But I think that you need to wait several years, at least get a little older and spend a lot more time thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that sounds really, I think that sounds really patronizing, actually. But the, the reason I don't go on Tumblr anymore is I know that I like lots of problematic stuff. I don't need minutely detailed lists on all the things that are problematic and how I should be ashamed for that. Mm-hmm. Like, I can deal with this shit. I don't need you to deal with it for me. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you think, because uh, when you were saying how, you know, being egocentric is, is an attribute that we all have as teenagers, and then you learn that you, you are not, in fact, the center even of you in your universe. Yeah. Do you think fandom has this negative effect of maybe stunting some people's development on that particular front? 
And then some of them don't grow out of it because of the fandom, the behaviors they learned, the bad behaviors they learn being part of a fandom, make them continue doing the, well, if you say this is bad and I like it, you're saying I'm bad kind of mentality, even when they should be old enough to know better. Yes. I'm going to say no. <laughs> I think there is to a certain level, um, we've talked about this before when Cleo was on the show, the concept of the feral fandom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, you know, as you know, Cleo's days as the, the Twilight recapper to end all Twilight recappers, she talked about the idea that the people who came to the to the Twilight fandom were a lot of people, particularly women of a certain age, but a lot mm-hmm. of them teenagers, a lot of them older in their, you know, thirties, forties and so on, who had never done fandom before. So all of the sort of unspoken rules of behavior, of tact, of community mm-hmm. had they never experienced them before and no one was there to tell them how to do it. Mm-hmm. So they just dived in in their extremely, you know, passionate manner and, you know, caused the chaos that came with it. And I think, honestly, that's one of the reasons I think Fifty Shades of Grey came to be and was allowed to come to be. Because nobody kind of talked to them and said, you're not supposed to do that with fan fiction. It's not there as a tool of profit. It's a, you know distinctly non-profit fan-based activity that is already in a very limited space of copyright issues Mm -hmm. it's not there for you to make a profit from but once that door was opened and it was twilight that really opened a door there everyone else was like well fuck it let's go so we've we've actually had this discussion before but i think it's been quite a few episodes ago so um you know i I think it would be all right for us to go back to it now but we did have kind of an in-depth discussion of well, what's the difference between, uh, say, the fanfic, published fanfics of today, and when Shakespeare was all, all of his plays, most of his plays aren't original, they're rewrites of known stories, and, you know, publishes, published it, obviously, like, the legality was settled. And I remember coming to the conclusion that my real problem, the my problem with it was that the money, say, E.L. James made of Fifty Shades, the, the reason her book became as huge as it was is because it was a Twilight fanfic. Her book published with an established fan base that wasn't hers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If she published Fifty Shades as a self-pub book online to begin with, and it didn't have the main character's name, Bella and Edward, and it wasn't on FF.net as a Twilight fanfic, I don't think it would have gotten as big as it did. Mm-hmm. So when you are literally using Twilight and Stephanie Meyer as your marketing tool... And then saying, no, I got here all on my own talent, on my own talent, this is my story, actually. No. <laughs> you didn't get there all on your own. Yeah, I think it's the, the thorough cannibalizing of the fandom that she used as her base was really difficult to watch, even for people who aren't Twilight fans. Because mm-hmm. it kind of goes against everything that they were taught about fandom. And the trust of that community that a lot of people had because there are a lot of twilight we you know fanfic writers who have now gone the pill to publish route but there are also a lot of them who are really angry about that mm-hmm. you know it really splintered that community in a big way and it's you know really ended up affecting the work in question the reason you're never gonna get midnight sun is because of el james and stephanie meyer has straight up said that mm-hmm it should also be said that fanfic has always existed in a legally gray area, even when it was, you know, even when it is all free. And a, 
a lot of the big websites, for example, will pull categories if an author straight up says, I don't allow this because they didn't want to, they can't get into a legal war with a, mm-hmm. with a published author. And people love fanfic. They write it, they read it. It's huge. And when it's kind of precarious already, anybody who jeopardizes it basically runs the risk of taking something away from this large community. Like, it's easy for E.L. James to say, well, I don't care if every fanfic uh, site on the internet gets shut down. I made my millions. But if what she did ultimately starts some sort of path, you know, some us on a path where writers are going to increasingly say, no, this isn't going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. We're shutting all the fanfic sites down. <laughs> I think this is why so many of us are sort of waiting on the edge of our seats to see who's going to be the first person to inevitably publish a fan fiction of Fifty Shades of Grey. Because... Mm-hmm. How on earth is E.L. James going to react to that? Because if she, you know, pulls a, a copyright claim or says, how dare you mess with my property, you can hear the irony bells ringing already. Mm-hmm. And you can go on to fanfiction.net and look up Fifty Shades of Grey, look up the fix with the most reviews or the longest in length and check the profiles, see how many of those writers are pretty open about the fact that they plan to pull to publish. Mm-hmm. It is a big number of people. I honestly can't. I could imagine her wanting to go to court. Ultimately, I can't imagine any lawyer taking the case just because how do you win it? It doesn't stop a lot of lawyers. No, I, well, I feel like true. a lawyer would take that. The money yes, to be made. That's true. Else. Yes, I know one in Ohio that probably would. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> I guess a lot of fuckery can happen in court, but do you, I just can't imagine her winning it. I can't imagine her winning it either, but sometimes i I imagine a level of um i imagine it would be some sort of um settlement would be made but but she's already opened that door there and a plenty of people have already taken that step i mean look at i'm convinced the reason stephanie meyer didn't sue is because her publishers told her not to because her publishers published this stuff Yeah, what you just said kind of reminds me of Anne Boleyn. You toppled the queen, Anne Boleyn. <laughs> so you opened that door. <laughs> right. Can we call this Boleyn's Law? Sure. We're naming it now. TV drops that yep. page. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, sometimes the strategy between for filing a lawsuit is not necessarily um, to win or to get what you say you want in your prayer for relief that's what it's actually called by the way is your prayer for relief but to cause the the defense to have to spend so much money Uh that they can't afford to keep doing what they're doing right for a reference please see the ec lawsuit yeah now we we bring up uh 50 shades a lot but uh let's name check some of the other published so the office i think is the other well-known one uh, there's the one by Tara Sumi, and can we just talk about the fact that she kept that name on the book? <laughs> uh, I believe isn't that one called like Beautiful Disaster? Wasn't that Beautiful, Beautiful Bastard? Bastard. Which Bastard I think yeah. is the office. Yeah. Okay, so that is sorry, I'm mixing. I didn't like. It. I was really pissed off about the fact that she was wearing la pair la panties, and he kept ripping them off her. It was like <laughs> they're like two hundred dollars pants. <laughs> really got to me. It really did. Yeah. For non-British listeners, pants means panties. I'm sorry, I just feel like that. <laughs> and that's why it's more scandalous that he's ripping $200 panties, for fuck's sake. God. 
Also, it actually doesn't, I know it's meant to be sexy, but mostly it makes me go, I think that would hurt. Like, can you imagine the silk digging into your skin? Yeah. This is painful. Yeah. Silk is not actually that, it's it's strong. That's why yeah. things like parachutes are made out of it. <laughs> and lace isn't really that gentle. <laughs> A lot of time it's kind of No, sexy. also, lace is itchy. Why is it on your panties to begin with? Very true. Mainly because they're I, not going to be on her very long. They'll just get ripped off. Right. They're, Rip they're them like... off now. It's itching. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many Twifix that have been published. There was one called Dante's Inferno. Or Gabriel's Inferno, which is so bad. It's like Fifty Shades of Grey by someone who really wants you to know that they've read Dante. So oh, I get God. it. You've read a thing that I've read too. Well done. Golf claps for you. Uh, what else is there? There was a whole one where he was homeless. Edward was homeless. I haven't read that. There was one where he was a politician. Uh-huh. There was... I, you know, there's an entire list of this. Let me Goodreads ask you all. something. Because, mm-hmm. in a way, all of these... Like, I cannot imagine somebody writing Harry Potter with, like, say, sci-fi instead of magic and getting away with it. Do you think the fact that these are... I don't want to call them romance stories, but stories about relationships makes it a lot easier to publish a fanfic and say, well, because they have no plot. Partially, but I think what made it easier to publish was the fact that J.K. Rowling sued the guy who wrote the Harry Potter lexicon. Right. Stephen Meyer yeah. didn't sue here. Yeah, absolutely. J.K. Um, basically peed on it and said, no, you don't get to do this. And but remember when J.K. Rowling herself was sued? This was early on. This was before the series yeah. was finished. Like there were there was such a thing at one time as, you know, intellectual property lawsuits over books. And for some reason it never well, I mean, I think Kaylee, you're right that the reason may be that the same publisher is making money off all of all of them. But intellectual property lawsuits when it came to novels happened, and then Twilight and then fifty all of its fanfic happened, and somehow the law the word lawsuit didn't enter you know, the conversation. And I wonder if it has to do with specific type of book it is. I think partially. I think because partially. there also wasn't... The, 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 uh, Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code lawsuit also yeah. didn't go anywhere. Oh, yeah. But at least it happened, right? It happened, but then it didn't go anywhere. And yes, I mean, you can find lawyers that'll be like, yes, I will take on your case. But mm-hmm. there are still more lawyers who are like, um... I mean, I'll do it if you want, but this is what I think is going to happen. Right. The Dan Brown lawsuit, though, I think it had largely to do with the fact that so much of it, they were soon kind of for ownership, but what was really like public domain mythology, possibly? I don't remember the detail. I remember reading about it at the time. It was quite a, a long time ago. I'll see if I can even dig up links for show notes. It was so long ago. Yeah, I think it was partially plagiarism and partially intellectual property. Mm-hmm. I want to say that. I mean, it's Dan Brown, so, like, whatever. Okay, so we're talking about lawsuits and plagiarism and intellectual property, and what name am I thinking of? Cassandra Clare? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm going to, like, like, lean away from the computer here. (laughs) And to be honest, I have only very vague memories of what that was about. Oh, I, I read this one, like, a year ago. That's another really good fandom wank, but I think a lot of that has been taken down because her lawyers work hard. Yeah. Allegedly. So it had to do with plagiarizing fanfic in a published work, right? 
No? Yes. yes? She, yes. she plagiarized an author called Pamela Dean mm-hmm. in her fan fiction, and then there was a full report of just how much of her work seemed to have been lifted from... From her own fan fiction, which from was... From other right. things, and... You know, the amount of quotes that she had from things like Buffy and Blackadder and Red Dwarf and stuff, which she claimed were either she subconsciously collected the quotes or they were put in there as reference points to see if anyone could get where they were from, even though she was happily taking credit for those quotes, you know, when people were sharing them in her fan community and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I honestly, talking about Cassandra Clare is a really difficult one because she is now a big name in YA fiction, mm-hmm. one of the bigger names, actually. She is a proper million seller. Um, she's an extremely successful businesswoman. She's a terrible writer, but she's a really good businesswoman, in my opinion. Just just stating that because I have a name in Hawaii occasionally. It's really difficult to talk about her because her fandom, in many ways, has replicated the fandom that she used to gain her fame. Mm-hmm. It has become this this snake eating tail, and any talk about the things that she did can be very difficult because you're immediately met with accusations that you're a horrible misogynistic bully so yep. honestly a lot of us just don't even bother talking about it anymore it's just not okay. worth our time Fair enough. yeah and even though her the movie based on her book tanked she's still they still are making a tv show out of it it's on abc family the, have you seen the trailer for that honey yes. that looks was isn't that the immortal instruments Yep. Yeah. And it's the one which where was people the name like... of her, which was the name of a fan fiction she wrote about Ron and Jenny. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, let's not forget that, guys. <laughs> we're not saying anything. We're just saying. No, I remember when the movie came out, and I remember even fans going, "Okay, but they're not going to do incest in movies. So what are they going to do?" <laughs> so let's let's move on with the topic because there is another thing we wanted to talk about, and that was creators interacting back with the fandom on the internet and Anne Rice specifically. Yeah, <laughs> we this had a request to talk about this. <laughs> oh, Annie. Annie because Annie. the internet goes both ways, and as the fandoms have now found a way to have a direct hotline to the objects of their obsession if they're real people, the authors can The authors back. can clap back. <laughs> So Anne Rice is uh, one of those authors who is famous for asking fa- uh, fan fiction websites not to have fanfic of her work. She is, I understand being protective of one's work. Like this is mm-hmm. your labor. These 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 characters and works matter to you probably more than to anybody else. I mean, you created them. So, and in some way, I can understand the point of view of an author who says, "I just, I can't, I don't want." fanfic of you know these characters having sex that are creating sex with each other i i personally think you should let fandom be fandom but i understand where these offers come from mm-hmm. but when you then go to goodreads and amazon and go okay people you're not allowed to leave reviews of my work yep mm. are you linked to reviews of your books that are not positive or are even only negative in the most vague manner and basically leave that as open season for your fans to attack that person. Like, the power balances there are pretty evident. It, it's, there's no balance at all. Mm-hmm. I, I am bemused by Anne Rice because I just want to sit her down and be like, Honey, you've sold a hundred million books. You're one of the most influential authors of your age. You have already won. Yeah, where you does the insecurity this. come from? Oh, I think it's always been there. Like... 
I've joked often that the Vampire Chronicles should just be renamed Anne Rice's Ed. Let me show you it. <laughs> I think because her work is in many ways so deeply personal to her. Mm-hmm. And that's evident if you read it. There's so much of it that her life is reflected in. And she's been quite open about that. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. But it baffles me that she wouldn't see any potential you know, backlash to that herself in reading and writing that. Like, books get reviewed. Mm-hmm. When you've published arguably the most influential vampire book of the past, you know, since Dracula, mm-hmm. you're going to expect a certain level of interference there. You're going to expect people to have their own interpretations and understandings of the character. And you can have your own character interpretations. I mean, you wrote the book, that's fine, but you have to understand the moment that book is on the shelves, it's no longer yours to define that. Mm-hmm. If you want to keep trying to define it, that's fine, but it's not going to stop other people from having other opinions of it. And when you have fans that are as dedicated as hers, I mean, they have an annual ball in New Orleans every year for her, for fans of that book, which is mm-hmm. probably really fun and I kind of want to go to it. <laughs> we can all go stay at Dana's house. Field trip! <laughs> But when you have that, you should expect that that passion will not always be positive. Mm-hmm. And as the Vampire Chronicles series went on and got, let's be honest, increasingly worse in quality, fans did start asking what was going on. And it had nothing to do with them, quote unquote, let's say it all together, interrogating the text you... from the wrong perspective. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is one of my favourite things to ever come out of the internet. Yeah. But the thing is now, because she stopped writing those books for a long time. She decided she was only going to write books about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So she did that for a while. But she's now writing the Vampire Chronicles again. So Well, her I Jesus books if... didn't sell very well. They've made them into a film. Like, that film is actually coming out. They still didn't sell very well. They sold well in the right circles. You know, mm. Christian readers. But then again, their latest Vampire Chronicles book didn't sell that great either. Well, yes. I, I don't know I'm whispering that. <laughs> like it's 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 like that cliche saying, "You die a hero, you live long enough to become a villain." Yep. Yep. But what's got me about the Anne Rice thing is how much she is willing to believe the most fourth-hand hearsay about. This blogger may or may not have said something bad about this offer. I can't find any proof, but I'm sure they said it. And how she spins that into this idea that there is a bully blogger gangster system. Gangster makes us sound like we're way more organized than we actually are. True. Like, if there was a bully blogger union, I'd be in it. But if you're a gangster, you get a Tommy gun. (laughs) But even she herself admitted she was going to write this pamphlet about the the perils of these evil gangster bully bloggers. Even she herself admitted that this was only like 0.01% of all the reviewers ever, but it still warranted her writing about it. Right. And then we all looked at her and went, sweetie, pamphlet? Yes. (laughs) Look, I I do have one thing to say in Anne Rice's defense. As far as we know, she hasn't hit anybody over the head with a wine bottle. No, but she does use Stop the Goodreads Bullies as a reference point, so... Well, yeah. For those of you who don't know, um, recently, an offer, a self-published offer called Richard Britton, um, pleaded guilty to following an offer all the way up to Scotland from London, who had written a bad review of his book on Goodreads, hitting her over the head with a wine... Yeah, hitting her over the head with a wine bottle until she was unconscious... 
and basically almost left her there to die. She's a 16-year-old girl. Yeah, 16-year-old girl. Yeah. He's a grown man. Yeah. She was working in a supermarket. He tracked her down to her job. She was stacking shelves. He bottled her. And people and, wonder why I don't review under my real name. And because I remember when the Kathleen Hale incident happened. Mm-hmm. Which is about a year ago now. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, Kathleen Hale is a young adult author who writes for Full Fathom 5, who is, uh, what's his face, James Frey's packaging company. She wrote a book called No One Else Can Have You, which I didn't like and I reviewed it, but another reviewer wrote a bad review of it and Kathleen Hale stalked her, like turned up at her door of her house and then wrote this Guardian article about how this offer wasn't who she says she was in her username or profile pic because the idea of having an online identity to protect yourself from creeps turning up at your door is a bad thing. Yeah. And she wrote this as a review on... Not as a review. She wrote as an article on The Guardian and claimed that she was she'd been catfished and this was a story about how she was so kooky and wacky and she did this thing and isn't she a bit strange for that? And it wasn't... You know, that was the tone of it. The tone wasn't, I'm a stalker creep. Mm-hmm. So there was kickback, as you can understand. There was a hashtag, hail no. <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Mm-hmm. And basically the response was from bloggers like myself, because I was part of this this backlash... This makes me feel really scared and unsafe. I don't want anything to do with this woman. I will never promote her work. I will, you know, go out of my way to avoid Harper Teen work. Was one of the, the points that I made. And the response that we got from a lot of people was, "You should have expected it." Yeah. What, you know, you maybe you shouldn't bully people. It wasn't even the fact that her review was really benign one star review. It was just I didn't like this book. Yeah. I didn't like these elements. People were so much more willing to believe the woman who admitted to stalking someone than the reviewer who had to who went offline for a really long time. You know, we lost a good reviewer that day. That sounds really dramatic, but there was a you know she was a good friend. She was really interesting to talk to. She is now backed online, but I don't think she reviews anymore. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who've stopped reviewing over the past couple of years because they're genuinely scared. So let me bring something up. Can, you cannot imagine. Benedict Cumberbatch or any of the supernatural actors um, or any of the real, you know, or Rob Pattinson tracking down people who say horrible things about their, you know, wives and girlfriends and going, don't you fucking dare, right? Like, you can't imagine the actors stalking the people who stalk them back. And partially because, you know, they have PR companies who will stop them if they ever wanted to. Do you think there's a problem that in, even though authors are supposed to have, you know, agents and editors and publishing houses, it's like they don't have handlers who, who, to tell them no. Oh, they don't. Most no, of they, them don't. They certainly don't. I mean, do they need handlers? <laughs> Cause it sounds like they do. Sometimes. I mean, one of the panels that we're doing at romantic times this year which is in Vegas, going to see Chippendales, is is talking about how you get reviews and how you deal with reviews. And like we we perennially have this conversation on Smart Bitches of like, okay, so the review isn't for you and it's not it's not a referendum on you as a person. It is a 
I liked your book or I didn't like your book and here are the reasons why. And yes, you spent hours and days and sometimes years working on this book and it is the product of your head and like we get that it's personal but you also need to understand that once you again release it out into the world it's no longer just yours and if you didn't want people to react to it then you needed to keep it just for you and that's that's (laughs) that's reality that's how the world works and Generally, things on smart pitches don't devolve like that. I think the community has grown up a little. And most of the authors behaving badly behavior happens on Goodreads and as a result of Goodreads. And also a lot of it's coming from self-published authors. Yes. And you can't, if you're a self-published author, um, no one's going to magically turn up with a handler for you. Uh-huh. I mean, your publisher, if you're traditionally published, your publisher could go, okay, you really need to stop acting like a fool right now. Otherwise, we're not going to deal with your shit anymore. But even then, I don't think that actually happens all that much. So it's a as a counterbalance to a rabid fandom, what do we have? Rab- feral fandom, sorry. Feral yeah. fandom. We have feral creators. <laughs> Kind of. They're not domesticated by HarperCollins or (laughs) I I think it's a ends up becoming a self fulfilling prophecy in that way. Mm -hmm. If you are particularly if you're something like a self published offer, not only do you not have like a publisher keeping you know telling you to toe the line, you also have a bunch of your fans who are like, yeah, you tell that person who's boss, we've got your back. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you're just making this worse. Do you understand Streisand's law? No. No, they don't. No. We should get that like embroidered on a pillow for all these people. Right. But I think that's one of the things that's that leads to like real person fandom becoming as wild and uncontrollable and you know borderline dangerous as it does. There's no real central hub for it in a way. Mm-hmm. Like in the, the you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is never gonna come out and say, You guys are crazy, you need to leave me alone. Cause it would be the, the backlash that he would get, no matter how justified he is in saying that, would not be worth the PR mess. Mm-hmm. It's me, it's easier for them to just not acknowledge it. Right, well, I, when, it, when the, the thing happened with someone live-tweeting his movements inside his house, he did come out and he was like, no, you guys need to knock this shit off. You can't do this. Well, that's true, but I don't think he's ever going to want to acknowledge the people who think that his wife is like the the criminal mastermind of the age <laughs> which i think makes her sound awesome but because mm. i know that robert pattinson indirectly commented on the people who say really nasty racist things about his girlfriend but he didn't directly acknowledge them as being his fans or fans of his previous relationship mm-hmm it must be a really difficult subject to broach. And honestly, I don't think the PR people who are, you know, by their side know how to handle this. You no. Know, crazy fans are not. one thing, but this level of conspiracy is totally new, I think, to them. I was just going to say, you can't argue with a the delusion. There, there's that right. as well. I think even if they were to come out and say that, like, you know, Robert Pattinson and FKA Twigs could get married and have tons of children and be very happy and go out and scream into the street every day, I love my wife. Mm-hmm. And someone will say, no, I know what's really going on here. This is just a PR fix. And he's waiting at home with Kristen and Sweet Pea because that's the name they've given the fake baby between Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. 
there's a very specific way of thinking that you see every single time in these fandoms. Look at Rob Stan Shippers, look at Damie Shippers, look at the people who ship the lead actors in Outlander. Mm -hmm. Like all of these things, you will see the same arguments time and time again, which is management is conspiring to keep your one true love apart either because it needs to keep them in the closet with something like what happened in the, the Lord of the Rings fandom days. You know, the infamous Dom Lija days. Oh, honey, look that one up. <laughs> My head is pasted on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nostalgia. 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 I know. I just got a warm fuzzy thinking about that. <laughs> Oh, I know. <laughs> we'll find the original picture of that somewhere for you guys. Oh, I've got if it. If you haven't, yes, if you haven't seen the original My Head is Pasted On picture, it's it's a work of art. It's a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. <laughs> particularly sad about say, the quote-unquote conspiracy uh, theory that the Outlander actors are being kept apart by management is that it's still somehow a staple in Hollywood marketing that if they have a romance in a movie, they want the actors to pretend to be dating for real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there are instances where you can see that and you can see that it's pretty obvious. Like, if you know the basic workings of PR, something like, remember when there was, like, that two-week relationship between Henry Cavill and Kaylee Cuoco from Big Bang Theory? Like, all of a sudden, they were just walking arm in arm around cities, like, oh my god, there's a camera, let's just smile at the camera. It was the most gloriously fake thing, mm-hmm. and then it immediately ended when people didn't buy it. Mm-hmm. There's a recent example of Tom Hilston and Elizabeth Olsen for his uh, his biopic of a singer. Hank Williams. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Hank kind of, I'm kind of fascinated by that one, actually. Because I remember there being gossip rumors of them being seen together and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that as people who have come of age with with this kind of fandom bullshit start aging into careers in PR, I think it's going to be really, really interesting. And it's similar to what I am looking forward to happening as people who actually understand how the internet works how the internet works and people who have been online had a presence online since they were 11 years old, start running for political office. (laughs) Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 And what, what those candidates need is people who have also had a presence online since they were 11 years old and actually understand that, (laughs) that of course you have a Tumblr full of, random slash fic you won't believe the fanfic this (laughs) (laughs) candidate wrote as an 11 year old right nope I did not understand exactly how lube worked when I wrote this when I was 12 (laughs) I have learned things now and that's why I'm qualified to be your senator (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm looking forward to that and dreading it at the same time oh no it's going to be a total hot mess and, and seriously political operatives who have an understanding of how that works have the opportunity to make fucking bank imagine the scandal style tv show that's going to be made of this oh my god like the the shonda rhymes of 30 years time is going to Mm -hmm. make the best tv show about this yeah i can't wait 
30 years from now, presidential candidate is interviewing, you know, political operatives. I was a high profile harmony shipper back in the days. <laughs> I need you to sell me to the Harry Jean, <laughs> Ginny and Ron Hermione constituents. Yep. <laughs> or bury it. One of those two things needs yep. to happen. Yep. I was young. I didn't inhale. <laughs> I did not have fanfiction relations with that pairing. <laughs> it depends on what the definition of is is. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I, I can't wait to just see how the level of PR that these people are going to be capable of. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you can twist an entire years-long relationship that not only are Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart still together, but they're married and she has managed to hide two separate pregnancies and he has been in a relationship with another woman for a whole year to hide that because he's so dedicated to his wife and children. If you can sell that to a group of people, no matter how deluded they are, you can sell anything. You're like the Don Draper of Fanwank. Honestly, why aren't you writing that best-selling novel? Yeah! I really want, like, a Gone Girl one-hour photo-style thriller about someone who hardcore ships a real couple and then when they break up how they handle it mm -hmm. like I, I i think that would be the 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 new misery <laughs> yeah but i would like to point out that uh this ridiculous real person fic is thing is not new in 1861 there was a book published titled The Amorous Intrigues and Adventures of Aaron Burr. <laughs> it is a porno biography of Aaron Burr in 1861. It's a thing. I have it. I'll be reading it. <laughs> I will report back. Well, I'm talking about actors whose on-screen like, romances people believe to be real. Uh, if you go back to black and white movies, you have, I believe, Nick Powell and Myrna Loy. I think a lot of the fans of their movies believe them to be a real couple. I remember reading kind of a funny trivia bit about them, how they arrived to some town for some PR thing, and they found that they were booked into the same hotel room because the hotel manager just assumed that they were a real married couple. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this is where the old way of Hollywood, for lack of a better term, kind of crosses over with modern day fandom. The the PR operation that has been that was going on in Hollywood from the golden age onwards, you know, when the studio system was in place, uh -huh. was in many ways kind of like what, you know, these shippers do today, albeit the people involved knew what they were getting into. Mm -hmm. So you had these relationships that were, you know, put together for publicity. You had the fan magazines and these, you know, amazing pieces about like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and Rita Hayworth and stuff that were supposed to be written by them, but were actually written by their PR people. You know, it was a tightly controlled operation and it's not as tightly controlled today, I would say, which is probably for the best because the way that the studio systems did things was, you know, pretty limiting for a lot of people. The people in charge now, I think, have more control over their edge to an extent. Mm -hmm. Like, they're allowed to have Instagram pages. Right. Right, and some people have Twitters that they use quite a lot, and then they stop using them because fans get weird. Haley Atwell stopped using her Twitter for fun things um, because people insisted on calling her mom. 
that really freaks me out yeah no it freaked her out too and she's like don't do that that's weird and they kept doing it so she's like okay i'm out and for a while even lin-manuel miranda's twitter bio was like i need you guys to remember that there's a real person attached to this i don't know what happened i don't know what people said but he had that as his twitter bio for at least a couple of days don't make it weird guys See, this is one of the things that fascinates me about this whole, like, YouTube fandom thing is it's people my age and younger who have millions of dollars and exceptionally dedicated fans and this level of power and influence that used to be only reserved for traditionally made kind of stars. Mm -hmm. How do you not just freak the fuck out with that? Because I tried watching some videos of this Zoella person who's the most popular YouTuber in the UK. You can smell the anxiety you know, coming off her. And she's admitted to having very severe panic attacks. I don't know how people like her cope. <laughs> I think a lot of them don't. Yeah. That, that's probably true. And that's how rehabs make their money. Mm. Also drug dealers. Mm. And a lot of handlers, like make their money off these people insecurities and honestly that's why i can't 100 percent hate justin bieber i think he's surrounded by the biggest shits yeah his parents included his parents like, especially that, okay can we go back to that tweet his father because that was the creepiest thing oh, ever uh... that, that made me genuinely really sad yeah like imagine having your privacy invaded in that way where you were blamed for it mm-hmm and your dad's response is, hey, that's my boy. Right. You get some more money, son. Even even Kate Middleton didn't have to put up with that. Early on when we started this, and Kate, you were talking about your grandmother being a Beatles fan. Mm -hmm. Can the One Direction fandom of today compare to Beatlemania? Is it our, um, this generation's Beatlemania? I think it is to an extent. Well, yeah. I think the... You know, every generation gets its boy band. Mm -hmm. There's the One Directions and the Justin Biebers. There was the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and New Kids mm -hmm. on the Block. Um, there was the Beatles. There was the Monkees. There was a Bass City Roller, stuff like that. This is not new. Um, and if you look at the way that the Beatles reacted to Linda McCartney and Yoko Ono, you can see a lot of the same patterns. Oh, yeah. So I, I, this, I think there is certainly an element of that. Maybe because we can see it more now with the internet. We see it unfolding as it happens. You know, the Beatles, we now have the gift of hindsight. Uh -huh. We can say, well, we wouldn't have done that now. It's like, well, we're kind of doing that now. Have you seen what these um, Larry shippers are up to? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there were like hardcore shippers in the 60s of Paul and John. I don't know. For why anyone wants to ship anyone with John Lennon is beyond me. Not a nice man. Can you imagine how weird it would be to know that there's fanfic out there of you having sex with your co-workers and friends? Like, that must be a very surreal sensation. Yeah, not everybody takes it as well as John Oliver did. Yeah. Oh, he was really sweet about it. He oh. was really sweet about it. I mean, mostly he was just miffed. That was a fandom that was really, that was a really extensive fandom, by the way. Yeah, and if you think about it, okay... This is going to sound, I, I hope it doesn't come off sounding a little snobby or obnoxious, but the Daily Show correspondent, like, it, it makes sense to me when it's about very pretty boys. Mm -hmm. 
the Daily Show the writers and correspondents are all very funny, and I'm not even saying they're bad looking, but these are not the type of men that I, I usually turned into sexual idols. So the fact that it kind of doesn't matter. People want the power to make you have sex with someone that they choose for you. It's weird. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a lot of respect for people who can handle this in a, a really jovial, positive manner. Because I don't know if I could. Like, even for, with all of my years and being in fandom and seeing this and knowing that people, the majority of people who write, like, real-person fanfiction aren't doing it out of a place of deluded fantasy. Mm-hmm. They're just doing it because it's their thing, you know? They treat them as in the way that they would kind of treat a fictional character. And it's not for them to say, I want this to happen and it must happen now, or it is happening now. It's just, I'm going to write this thing and I'm going to have fun about it and then I'm going to get on with my life. Even knowing all that, I think I would still be really discomforted by it. See, that's the problem. As you said, treating somebody as a fictional character, what we come up to is when it's a fandom of an actual fictional thing, it's usually, even when that seriously tragic things happen in the fandom, you know, people being taken advantage of financially, things like that. We still kind of dissect it as just a human interest story. But then you get things like movies and TV shows. So there are actors that get conflated with the characters they're playing and then get treated like they're fictional characters. So it adds this extra layer of, do you not understand what a person is? (laughs) Like, have you lost sight of the respect you need to extend somebody else's personhood? I think it's difficult for some people to realize that the people who they don't see, like, in meat space, in the flesh, are actual people. Like, they don't get the people on the other end of the internet are people always. Uh And people who you only see either performing as a character or performing as the, this is a press tour and this is a thing that I have to do for my job, even though I hate it. I feel bad for Chris Evans. I really do because I know how much he detests the press tour. But the way that the press tour operates now, I mean, the talk show circuit is very different now from what it was about five years ago. Mm -hmm. It's so much more based on going quote unquote viral. Like Jimmy Fallon is a terrible talk show host, but he's very good at making cute little nostalgia videos and games with celebrities that get lots of views and help PR. And that's why he gets top guests. Mm -hmm. And you can see the way that other chat show hosts are copying that Mm -hmm. to more or lesser degrees in some cases. James Corden is basically copying it down pat. Stephen Colbert is going a more sort of adult, sophisticated route. But it is now the way that things get done because less and less people watch Late Night, but it's still a really crucial part of how we do PR. Yeah, People don't buy as many magazines, but they will watch YouTube videos. Mm Mm-hmm. So Chris Evans has to go on these shows and talk about his, you know, getting shirtless and having women scream at him in the audience. And he has to smile and pretend that this doesn't make him really uncomfortable. And then he's got to play like, I don't know, what games did Jimmy Fallon play? I don't know. Pretend I'm not drunk and on coke. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They, you have, they have to go through that consistently. Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways that kind of, I, I don't want to say it exacerbates it because it makes it sound really victim blamey. It plays into the cycle in a way that I don't think they expect it to. Because mm-hmm. then you see things like every time there's a chat show host who thinks they'll have the fun and unique idea to get the person to read out the fan fiction written about them. Right. And they clearly don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like Benedict Cumberbatch or Martin Freeman, but I don't think anyone should have to be forced to read fan fiction about yourselves out loud. Oh, no. Please don't do that. Like, I know that Lynn manuel is like, show me all the fanfic. 
I want it. And the Hugh Dancy apparently went and sought it out on his own and was kind of delighted by it. Well, so was Matt Troll. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's one thing to be like, okay, show me the way. I want to see all of it. And other people being like, here. Yeah. Read this now live. Don't do that. But that's the thing. Some people, there's a way to, if you want to embrace fandom in that way, people will more likely than not embrace you for that. Look at the way that Orlando Jones was embraced yeah. when he was actually still in Sleepy Hollow. Seriously, fuck you, Sleepy Hollow, for you know. messing that up. But even like, you know, Brian Fuller was very open about the fact that he loved all the fan art for Hannibal. Even there, um, I think even some of the Lord of the Rings cast members were quite open about that. Mm-hmm. Maybe not to the extent that the, the, the kind of twisted fandom became from any of them. But there was certainly an acknowledgement there. But there's it's very different to be like, hey, this is really cool. You go, guys go do your thing. I support that. And you have to read this thing out now. Mm-hmm. Even though you are evidently squirming in your seat. And also to do that without getting the permission of the person whose fanfic it is, I think is really dickish. Because mm-hmm. they're never using it as a like, isn't it really cool that these people explore their their love of this thing in this particular way. It's always, ha-ha, women are stupid. Am I right? Yeah. Because it's always laughing at women when they do that. That's why I think a lot of talk about women in fan- in fandom particularly, outside of that realm, on things like chat shows and stuff, is always from a point of sneering or mocking. And there are elements that deserve that. Like, the whole thing, you know, like, the Rob Sten shit deserves to be sneered at. <laughs> but, like, people who just really like Twilight, mm-hmm. don't sneer at that. I always remember the um, the Kevin Smith quote where he mentioned Twilight at Comic-Con and they started booing him and he says, oh, come on, this is a room full of people dressed as Spock and Chewbacca going, look at those fucking geeks. Right. <laughs> All right. So I think that's our little TLDR about fandom. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it certainly doesn't cover it. We could go on and on and on, but I am really hungry. <laughs> That's how we control the length of our podcast. We do it on an empty stomach. <laughs> I do it on an empty stomach, and then you're like, okay, need it. So that has been episode, what the hell is it, 39? The last 39. one of the year. The last one of the year. Goodbye, um, 2015. Yep, we're recording this on the last night of Hanukkah, so happy Hanukkah, Elena. I, I'm glad you knew that, because I did not. <laughs> Hats off to Hanukkah. <laughs> right. All holidays matter, Alina. <laughs> There's some so, awesome Hanukkah romances on Smart Bitches as well. I totally want to buy them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, happy holidays to all of our listeners. And we will see you next year with a new topic. A trio. New topics, new uh, avocados. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so good night everybody. Bye. Bye. Good night. You have been listening to Anglophies, a made of fail production. <laughs> My headphones just fell off. <laughs> Your headphones aren't pasted on. Boo. They are not. <laughs>